Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Jim, are you home now? I'm in the subway. Oh, Okay. It's a little more comfortable than my car. Yeah. Good to see you, Matt. Hello. Rob, have you met everybody? Uh, yeah. Week two, I think it was. Yeah. Okay. Good to see you, Drew. How you doing? Good, good. I actually just turned my head. <laughs> oh, okay. Like a, a few seconds ago. So. Okay, well, everybody. <laughs> so you definitely didn't get to mine. Good to see you, Brad. It says Amanda again. I got to fix that. Yeah, yeah. Hey. Well, We've learned that's not who you are. The computer hasn't. <laughs> Y'all doing okay? I'm good. I'm, I was just saying to Jim or uh, Brian, we're real cheap. And so every year we try to survive as long as we can without turning our heat on. Oh. And every year I wonder, why do we do this to ourselves? <laughs> well, we live down the south coast of Mississippi, and today is the first day we've had weather that we would even think about turning on our heat. It was freezing, or at 32 degrees last night, I'm pretty sure, yeah. You know, we lived in Japan for 20 years, and in Japan, we never had, most people don't have central heating or cooling. You know, everything space heaters or window units, or we'd wear hats and gloves to, to bed. Hey, do it, Dave. I'm doing good, Paul. Sorry I missed last week. Yeah, yeah. we Man, we soared last week. You probably did. You probably <laughs> did. I did send you the video. I, you have. It was either that or Lord of the Rings. Oh. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how I came, how we came into competition with Lord of the Rings. Well, I mean, they both got action in them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I, I had a trouble with impassable and passable. Can someone just give me a quick definition of what what that means? It can mean suffering or changing. Mm, okay. Passable means changing. Impassable means unchanging. Gotcha. Okay. Great. Like the unmoved mover and Greek philosophical mm. understanding. Like we're we're we our God's not that. Our our God can actually feel and you know, he can cry. He can actually he has passion. I think it that I think what Irenaeus and Bear are pointing out that it's on the cross, and as Bear will say, that that Jesus shows us what it is to be God and what it is to be human. So, in the one subject, Jesus on the cross, all creation, all of God is summed up in the Jesus that we see. Uh, we see the impassable becoming capable of suffering. Um, I think another way to saying this is that. The very being of God is revealed to us by Jesus' voluntary death on the cross, implication being that God is cruciform all the way down. The invisible God is made visible, that the impassable God is made passable, that the transcendent God is made eminent. There, there are absolute differences that are reconciled in Christ. Maybe it's too simplistic to say it, that Jesus is our interpretation of God, right? Jesus is the interpretation of God. Jesus exegetes God. You know, Jesus is God's interpretation of, uh, right? Like it's a shorthand way of kind of summing up what we're trying to say, right? But if, but if you missed that, you would do what Marcion does. We would interpret 
too different. We'd interpret, you know, two different gods. We would, we would separate out um, our interpretation. In other words, our epistemology from our ontology. But I think that what you're trying to say is, is that what you're doing or what God is doing in Christ is bringing together what we know and what we are in Christ. That's it. Yeah. I always go dark. Uh, maybe I do dark better. You know, there is in Freud the compulsion to repeat. Hmm. Uh, I don't think the compulsion to repeat is inherently a sickness, because I think actually what we're describing in the end, in recapitulation, is repetition with a difference. That here is the recapitulation. Here is the encounter with the Holy Spirit. What is repetition? Repetition is the you're repeating an emptiness, you're repeating an absence that you can equate with death. You know, Irenaeus doesn't say this, but certainly he has this idea that apart from Christ, our problem is that we is tied up in uh, our captivity to death. Mm -hmm. I think that describes a the human psyche re that recapitulation directly addresses. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with having a compulsion to repeat the life given to us in Christ through the gospel. That sh that's, a, that's a healthy compulsion. But that compulsion, given no content, given no substance, I think is simply death. And that's what Freud says, the compulsion to repeat, he equates with the death drive. Thought I'd throw a little darkness on our life. <laughs> well, I don't know if you can make it a rule, but boy, it seems like that we should not separate our soteriology from our hermeneutics or our hermeneutics from our soteriology. That how is recapitulation a hermeneutic? Of course, the way we've normally thought about recapitulation is as we, we I don't think we connect it as a way of reading the Bible, but I don't know how else to combine them or that they've been combined any better than they are in Irenaeus and, and this whole notion. We're still talking about a rule of faith, but of course, rule of faith is going to come to mean something different. Slowly, you know, they're going to be starting to write creeds, and, and Drew, your point last week, there's nothing wrong with creeds per se, but if in some way doctrines, creeds, and propositions come to in some way displace the rule of faith, well, what we've just said is the gospel is displaced. Maybe there's a bit of ambiguity in what we're describing here, that as the church becomes more and more concerned to draw lines and say who's in and who's out, I think it's going to become more propositional, more creed-based, and we're going to lose, I think, literally uh, what we are really talking about here when we're talking about the rule of faith. We have the word Christocentrism, but I think in Irenaeus we're actually saying something very much stronger than what we might normally say with Christocentrism. You know, Christocentrism, we'd say, well, we read through Christ, and that's true, but I think he's saying it that it's even more than that. In what sense is uh, can we uh, state this stronger? Well, Christ is incarnate in the scriptures. We could even say it that way. Yeah, yeah, we encounter Christ in the scriptures. Uh, what, what's that quote, Matt? That you always say of origin. Oh yeah, no, that's that's that was it. That the Christ is incarnate 
uh, in the scriptures that we meet him uh, in various ways. You know, for origin, we meet him in the Eucharist. That he was incarnate historically in the Eucharist, in the scriptures, and our neighbor. The word Christocentrism. You're saying maybe what's a better word or what might give it a fuller meaning. Uh huh. Um, they were. I forgot which section of the writing but bear was saying it's very important that we understand it's jesus christ son of god every time we say christ or every time we say jesus it's always that full title that applies so christocentrism is a limited word unless you realize you're talking about jesus the nazarene son of god both man and god that's so good yeah, i think that yeah. would be a important distinction to say we're not just talking about the word christ only we're talking about jesus christ yeah, yeah, that's good. We've talked about this. I, I think it was this this class before that, you know, Christ is not uh, one episode in the in the biography of God, and well, no, this is that that here. This is what we have. So, I think even in Christocentrism, people can to think of a kind of pre-incarnate logos, mm. or the Christocentrism is, doesn't have the idea. I, you know, that you encounter Christ in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And of course, this we've talked about this that in the early church and in scripture, you're not going to talk about the Trinity apart from the incarnation, but they're going to later begin to do that. I think that's just a category mistake. And so, with that, you're going to get all kinds of discussion, you know, about the working of the Trinity. So, this is going to fall apart in what is it's still going to be, you know, we still call this orthodoxy. But he's pointing to, I, I think, an early, earlier orthodoxy. So how does Christ reveal the Trinity for Irenaeus? He's looking at Irenaeus' rule, rule of faith. So that's in, in Book 1, Chapter 9, uh, Paragraph 4. The faith in, uh, you know, the rule is the faith in, one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So there, we know who God is because first he's Father. Then we know what it means for him to be Almighty. And then we know what it means to be creator because it's all tied to who we know Christ is. And that, I mean, I think that's origin gets more into those titles and why that logical, the logic of that order is important for how we know who God is. We know him first, that he's Father, we know that he's almighty um, uh, because of, of Christ's work in compelling people, not compelling, but convincing people to come to faith. And we know he's creator by what he does in creating man on the cross. And then the rule of faith goes on. And in one Jesus Christ, the son of God, who was in flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who the prophets preached the economies, that is his coming, the birth of a virgin, the passion, resurrection, bodily ascension into heaven, and is coming from heaven to recapitulate all things, bringing judgment uh, to eternal separation or life. And so we know the Holy Spirit because uh, it is helping us. I think I think what he's saying, we know the Holy Spirit because it, it is what it is the person who is helping us to go back and read the scriptures, the Old Testament so that we can see the prophets preaching uh, of Christ through his economy. So we can see in the Old Testament that Christ is going to come and be born of a virgin, so that we can see cross and resurrection in, in the Old Testament, and that the Holy Spirit is not working necessarily as we often think as, as you know, 
modern people, we think that inspiration lies uh, or occurred only when the biblical author was writing down the scripture. Um, but I think what Aaron Ace is telling us, it's the Holy Spirit is acting and scripture is inspired based on the way that we interpret that scripture. The, whole, the Holy Spirit is the gift of the hermeneutic and salvation of recapitulation. Yeah. In other words, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's life, but eternal life. Irenaeus is going to equate eternal life with the life of the Spirit. So for him, talking about human life, well, the life is always the life from God, and even you could say even life from the Holy Spirit. But he's going to differentiate that the, the gift of the Holy Spirit then is this immortal life. Not that we're... And so for, yeah, that was my little article on, you know, the, the idea of death is, is central. That's really the what you're uh, saved from, and death then is a containment in two senses of sin. It contains the possibility, it limits sin, but it also then contains the result of sin, in a sense. And so life is the resolution to the problem of death, which is connected to sin. Uh, maybe maybe just a thought that was going back a little bit later, Paul, you know, there's one economy, one gospel. You're, you were saying maybe there's not even two covenants. Should we not use that language anymore of two covenants? Is that wrong to say that? I guess it even depends on what you mean by it. You know, obviously there's many covenants and many, but I think there's one economy. Well, one Christ, one good news revealed maybe maybe we can say the the former covenant was christ revealed and the new covenant is christ unveiled to us and would that be a way that we could separate i was going back to that thought you said you know like when we're when we're maybe like when drew was saying later it's like you know historically you know we differentiate old and new and there's obviously the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham. There's these promises that are given. But I think what Irenaeus would say is, yeah, but they're all about Christ. And it's Christ that's actually, that's there. It is Christ speaking in that situation. So it Irenaeus is the, wouldn't have a problem with saying there is an old and there is a new. I think that Irenaeus might be uncomfortable if by covenant you mean a different economy. I think or that question, or, perhaps... When we think old, that I think that would be something that we need to specify now, because for us, old means something that you can discard completely. Like if I get a new phone, I don't need my old phone. I just throw it to the trash. And so for a Christian, uh, it's not about throwing to the trash that first part of the scriptures, even though it's old it's an old promise that jesus is fulfilling in in this new covenant it's still the promise to abraham so it's not old in the sense that you know get rid of it and here's a new thing here's a better thing it's an updated uh you know covenant i think it's just we would need to specify what the term old means in 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 that context and not think of old in our context so i think that would be a little bit more helpful whenever we about well, the book of Hebrews talks about the, the old covenant is obsolete and being replaced with a new covenant. Yeah, the bull, the blood of bulls and goats. And, and I think that in Hebrews, it's precisely talking about the, the sacrificial system. 
but the promise to Abraham uh, precedes the sacrificial system Correct. for Moses' uh, covenant. So I, in that sense, Jesus' new covenant replaces the sacrificial system, but it's still fulfilling the promise to Abraham, which was before the law. All right. Bear is carefully uh, picturing in Irenaeus his conception of the Trinity as found in Christ. What will uh, come to be called the two natures of Christ, I think is made easier to understand in Irenaeus's picture. He's not using the, the language of Chalcedon. Nothing wrong with the language of Chalcedon. I think that what's going to happen, the problem is that, and of course, Chalcedon rightly understood, you avoid this problem. But the danger is that we fall into a dualism, and I think he avoids this. Well, this captured me. I think certainly that moment of recapitulation where it sounds like he's saying God becomes man and man becomes God. So there's the crisscross effect. If there was an original dualism between God, the creator, and his creation, the dual nature of Christ unifies it. So they're one thing now. There's still difference. There's still diversity. But in terms of, I guess, substance, maybe, and I know I'm getting into very technical words that y'all will correct me on <laughs> if I need to be corrected. But in terms of nature and substance, Christ really brought the two together. So it's blowing my mind, and I'm not sure what to do with it, but it's like a, a refutation once and for all of dualism. But the way they formulated it was without separation and without confusion. Yeah, it was the relationship between God and man, God and Jesus, that is the, the, the nature of their, their difference. I mean, it's this again, it's the crisscross part where Jesus related to both God and man, God related to man through Jesus, man related to God through Jesus. So he's in the center, brings the two together. I know that this is, there's something important here that will come up later, maybe as we get into the age of Augustine and his writing, as we kind of talk about the rule of faith, losing a little bit of its edge, but I'm not sure what to anticipate or how to talk about it now. New creation was the, the word that I came up with. Of course, that's Paul's word. That between Christ's deity and humanity, the one single moment on the cross of his, his work and maybe transfiguration even, is when all things are made new. It's not a dualism, if there ever was. Can't see it that way anymore. You have to say it. It's not a monism either because it's trinity. It's relationship. There's difference, there's diversity, but this unites every bit of it. The diversity that Bear was talking about. What, what brings the various Christianities together? What brings people together, old and new together? This is it. it recapitulation. Uh, I don't know how it avoids at this time dualism, but it sure does help as we go forward, I think, to remember that this is never said any better than this. Yeah, I think this is the, the logic. We're, we're always going to be faced with, and this is Jacques Derrida, but Derrida is just, I think, summing up the history of human thought, that identity through difference reduces to sameness. So our tendency will be to pose differences. This is, you know, Hegelian differences, a dialectic, 
And then in through the differences, thesis, antithesis, you arrive at a synthesis. If you want to think in Eastern thought, there is yin and yang. Have you seen the, the, the circle? And then within the big circle, there's a division, and then there's a tiny circle. And the idea is it's the same thing. It's that the yin is in the yang, and the yang is in the yin, because identity through difference means that you need the difference for the identity, meaning that all of this reduces to contradiction. I think that Greek logic, Greek understanding, reduces to a kind of contradiction. The problem of the one and the many. What we're actually doing in Christ is we're resolving this problem. And that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about a, an alternative logic that can only be encountered in Christ. Um, I answered um, the language that will be taken up and relentlessly worked over in the Christological controversies before and after Chalcedon are attempts to distinguish, reconcile, and rate the concept of nature and person as applicable to Jesus Christ. The particular question being, how do we understand and resolve the apparent contradiction that Jesus is one person with two natures? How do we relate Christ's two natures without dividing them into two persons, thus undermining the notion of salvation by union and deification? Arrhenius forcefully affirms the unity of Christ as re re recapitulation or summing up of all things. He focuses not on the relation of his divine and human nature, but on the fact that the one person, Jesus Christ, recapitulates, quoting Irenaeus, all things in himself, including man, the invisible, incomprehensible, impassable word becomes comprehensible and passable, becomes man. Arrhenius focuses on this one person who sums up all things created and uncreated. Of, I mean, this is, I guess, nature and person is not his problem he's dealing with yet. And I think you will see this, Max. I think Maximus gets at this as well. And when he is dealing with nature and person is that he wants to stop looking at natures in the abstract and saying we have these two abstract things called divinity and humanity and how in the abstract we combine them together and instead look at the particular of Jesus Christ, assuming that in this one person those things are combined. And I don't mean that as, as they blend away to nothing. I mean combined in the way Calston says, unconfused, undivisible, and so forth. But they are, we, we see those things in that one person. I think Bear gets at that pretty well, actually, with his, on the cross, we see what it is to be God and what it is to be human. That there's one person. I, I just thought it was interesting that Irenaeus is using these, what we would normally think are complete differences, visible, invisible, passable, impassable, incomprehensible, comprehensible. In other words, he's putting these things together. But you understand these things that we might think of as absolute differences are absolute differences. They can't be in any kind of philosophical logic put together. That doesn't mean they can't be put together because they have been in Christ. Christ contains those differences within himself. And so the person, the particular person of Christ is the God-man. That's an impossibility outside of the reality of the gospel. <clears throat> I liked Irenaeus. I thought, I thought um, it provided a, a an interesting take that I've never, ever experienced before. For what we're doing, I think this is foundational. This 
is on a streamline through origin to what is going to be developed in by Maximus and by the Cappadocian fathers. But, you, you know, I'm not saying we can't at some point object and say, wait a minute. But I think that the logic or, or what's being laid out here, it, first of all, it's strange for us. Because I think for most of us, this isn't the Christianity that we've been taught. But I think that immediately should make us suspicious of what we've been taught. <laughs> because I think it is a departure from what has been passed down through you know, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Origen. And we're going to lose it. And I think part of, part of the class is to say, what, what happened? Where, where did we lose it? Different traditions, different churches are going to object to that depiction. But I, I think there's no question that in some way we've departed from what we're encountering in Irenaeus. With what we learned about what Bear guided us into, of course, um, and the uh, information about Ignatius and Irenaeus and a little bit of Athanasius in there, but everything I had ever kind of assumed or thought about origin fell clicked back into place by reading uh, I, about you know, with As with everything else, Bear, of course, is taking his own tack on it. But uh, again, he's not alone in that. You know, it's kind of when we did Bear with John, he said, well, this is what the scholars, this is what the consensus is, and they're wrong. yeah well i mean it takes a special patience and insight to be able to reframe and reread and not dismiss if if your whole community basically dismisses them as a a platonist or whatever you would call him to go back through and and look at it with some nuance and grace and recognize you know what he's actually doing the opposite yeah, he was yeah. just re- real deep into, I guess, the language and using using it constructively to communicate the gospel. I think he was such a uh, subtle thinker, and he was working with language in a way that people were not prepared for the subtlety, that he has to be one of the most misread. And part of it, you know, is the whole manuscript, you know, people that all these various manuscripts. And then even his friends turn out, people who translate him, think they're doing us a favor and explaining him in the translation, but sometimes they didn't understand him either. <laughs> mm. And doesn't he have a whole uh, high volume of material? They're saying 6,000 books. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but of course, we don't have all the books, but we get a lot. <laughs> I can't remember, he had a a group of people that he would dictate to, like six people. Mm. And then there was a whole nother group that would sit, you know, stenographers that would turn it into nice writing. So he wasn't writing himself, but was just dictating. Yeah, it's a lot of work, a lot that he put out. Well, let me, I will uh, do some talking. And of course, the picture here, I think it's obvious that Origen is continuing what began in Irenaeus and Ignatius, and that is we're talking about the rule of faith. And so he sounds at places just like them, but with the on first principles, he's expanding upon this. 
and painting a kind of holistic picture of, okay, if you believe in the gospel, given the truth of the gospel, this is the sort of world that is necessary. Now, unfortunately, I'm not sure his contemporaries or even people today are up to the task of understanding origin. The first thing that I'll talk about, he's very well read in Greek philosophical thought. I just had a few articles I'd open up, you know, like the first three lines, origin, the Platonist. That, that just seems to be the consensus. And of course, Bear is taking that on, and Bear is basing his work on, on a Greek theologian that I'll reference here in a minute. But he is beginning with a, a kind of Arist Aristotelian basis, you know, the idea of a canon is really with Aristotle, but what Hellenistic philosophy, the idea that kind of sense perception makes for, uh, is synthesized, and that facilitates knowledge. The, the quote that I have here, the self-evidence of the sense perceptions for the Epicureans and the clarity of cognitive impressions for the Stoics provide the infallible criterion for examining what truly exists. That is, we're doing first philosophy. Here is the ground of philosophical thought. If I asked you a kind of pedantic question, what is origin's first principle? You know, when we say first principle, but in, in brief, what do you think origin's first principle is? What is he talking about? I thought that origin's first principles, and I'm open to, you know, but were... Um the Trinity, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then creation. So in other words, God and creation. It's the gospel, right? I mean, that's really what we're talking about. That may be, yeah, I, th that's right, that he's talking about the Trinity. He's talking about God as creator. He's talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son. So you know right off when somebody says, origin, the Platonist, no, that's, not, that's just not what he's doing. Uh, that the ba a whole foundation of this thing is different. So the idea here, there's a faith, you know, that there may be a similarity. And, and he, Origen will say this, and even will say, well, now here I sound like the Greeks, but that's not what I'm doing. But there is a given faith in human intellect, that is, I think, among the Greeks. Everybody's assuming that we can trust reason. And you use the intellect to apply knowledge and gain wisdom, uh, so that wisdom is compounded of both knowledge and intellect, for wisdom is concerned with both first principles, I'm just quoting Aristotle, and with what is already demonstrated from the first principles, from those things that are the concern of knowledge. So far, then, as it is concerned with principles, wisdom partakes of an intellect. So far as it is concerned with what can therefore be demonstrated, it partakes of knowledge. You know, this is Bear's opening point to say, well, there is a sense that in the fashion of a Greek philosopher, he's laying out his first principles. But, of course, his first principle is the wisdom that is Christ himself, the wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom of God, you know, Christ as the wisdom of God. Uh, he references Proverbs 8.22. This is from uh, Bear. In other words, Origen's concern is not so, not so much the status of creation itself, 
but to work out the hierarchy of the scriptural titles for God and Christ. So first principles, he starts talking about who is Jesus Christ, and how is the Father related to the Son, and how, you know, so it's a Trinitarian analysis. Uh, if wisdom is to be said to be an emanation of the purest glory of the Almighty, and of course, he's going. There, there is some overlap with some Greek understanding here, but that he's not talking about emanation in the way the Greeks are talking about it. So that the title of Almighty cannot be older in God than that of the Father, for it is through the Son that the Father is Almighty, and as God's reign, God's rule, is it's being established in Christ. It is not only uh, that Scripture confers the title Almighty but upon both God and Christ, but their omnipotence is demonstrated, you know, by Paul in Philippians, the picture of the kenotic, every knee shall bow. So, step one, point one, origin is clearly working with a what do we call it? A Christological frame, a Trinitarian frame. And the problem is, I don't think very many people have been up to the task of following his argument. So he's going to be accused of talking about uh, a kind of Greek reincarnation or the pre existence of souls. You know, he's going to be condemned as a heretic, uh, I think, because people didn't understand what he was doing. Now, why didn't they understand? Uh, partly because of the subtlety of his argument, partly because the manuscripts that he has written. And this was happening even in his lifetime. People were taking things that he had written, and he, found, he, he would find them, and people had changed them up. So it, and it happened through, throughout history. And then, as I was saying earlier, that the people, those that were translating him, Rufinus, you know, thinks he's helping us. And Bear's point is, yeah, sometimes Rufinus doesn't understand origin. And in aiding us, he's actually obstructing what is being said. So his readers, his translators, and ultimately the church will so misunderstand origin, he's going to be condemned. And the big thing here and that Bear is focused on is really the relationship between time and eternity that is the most complicated, maybe the key to the whole thing. So there's a kind of simplistic notion that origin is a Platonist and that he's simply deploying Platonism or Neoplatonism to explain Christianity, depending on what you think of Plato, you know, but th that he's going to be charged with Hellenizing Christianity. Or some are just going to say that Christianity is a Hellenistic form of thought. I think this is exactly wrong. I think that's what Bear is saying. Bear is setting out and showing that what Origen is doing is unique to Christianity. You know, in other words, Origen is trying to give us the Christological understanding. But that's not the consensus. So nearly everything you pick up will say that his Christianity is to be fit into a, a Greek frame of thought. And so Bear is arguing, this was kind of the thing we began the John class. You know, John Bear says, well, here is the consensus of the scholarship, and the consensus is mistaken. And so to hear, here is the consensus on origin, and it's just mistaken.
Origen's not a Platonist, and this is from Pete Zamalicus, who is uh, just quite ingenious, and this is who Bear is relying upon. And uh, Zamalicus just says point blank, Origen is not an, a Platonist, Origen is an anti-Platonist. This is the quote from Tzimalikas. Since 1986, I argue for the unpopular thesis that Origen is an anti-Platonist in many respects. This was received with suspicion and distrust with a mindset where branding him a Christian Platonist was and still is a matter of course. I think this is going to make a huge difference first of all, for what we imagine Christianity is and how Christianity fits into the world. My understanding is that of Bear, the understanding that we're working out, is that we're working within a unique frame of thought. You know, while origin is well read in Greek philosophy, we'll occasionally refer to it. Let me do Tzimalikas just to just to run this home for you, because there really aren't that many voices uh, saying this. He says, my contention is that important aspects of Origen's thought conflict with Platonism. For a long time, the assertion uh, of Platonism in Origen was not easily defensible. I think he, uh, Somalicus, by the way, he's clearly his native language is not English, and, and he published this through Brill. And Brill publishing, some I, nobody went through and corrected his English. This is because a misleading past has rendered the assumption quite attractive to scholarship. Uh, that is, that Origen is a Platonist. And he says this can be shown to be wrong. And he sets out, he's written two books that uh, Bear is referring primarily to, to one of them. Again, Samalicus. Actually, the claim of Platonism in Origen is baffling. That argument would need to be established needed to establish not its incoherence, but its coherence. For it thrives on half-truths confronting his own statements and cardinal ideas, with Platonism being mostly a flight of fancy in heads of unlearned authors. And here he's thinking of bishops who, you know, they're bishops. If you're an important guy in the church, you're going to make pronouncements. His, under, his point is, they, they didn't understand who Plato was, and they certainly didn't understand who Origen was. He says, uh, uh, many bishops of old times whose views were upheld by modern theologians, no less uninformed about what Plato really wrote. So he manages to insult everybody. Again, Samalicus. There is a stream of scholarship postulating a wholesale Platonic identity to Origen's thought. What is almost always forgotten, however, is that it is Origen himself who singles out Platonic views for the purpose of juxtaposing them with his own conceptions. Had he upheld a notion redolent of a Platonic outlook, would it be too difficult for him to say a few words about it? Against Celsus, promptly concedes certain of his viewpoints appearing to be similar to Platonic views. Those points are pointed out and considered with portions of Plato's works quoted wherever necessary. So he says occasionally, well, this may sound like, uh, and of course, where he's going to make the departure is, first of all, on, on the relation on resurrection and 
the idea of an embodied resurrection, and then also on the issue of time and eternity. But to Malachus again, on the issue of history and eschatology, Origen knows that his views have nothing to do with those of any pagan philosopher. I think that's part of our problem reading Origen. They ain't nothing like him. In other words, he, I think he's unique. But of course, he's unique because I think he's working on the basis of a gospel understanding, the gospel understanding. Uh, the truth is thought, that, though, that Origen espoused a notion held in derision by many Platonists, which nevertheless was originated in the Hebraic tradition, survival as resurrection of the body. According to Platonist material things, make up only the lower half of the wholeness of reality. Indeed, the far less dignified half of it. Far from them, the body is the source of passion, of meanness and decay, the most outright representation of degeneration and materiality. This ought to dissolve irrevocably. That is, the body is the prison house of the soul for Plato. We're rejecting the notion of the soul surviving without a body. Origen virtually denied the idea of resurrected bodies living in a disincarnate form. That is, there is no disembodied resurrection. He defended resurrection in a body. Now, we might argue about what he meant by that, but there's no question that he believed that. Although he, this is understood to be a body of a different quality, Still, this is definitely material body. And even the word material here, he, he's not going to use that in a simplistic fashion. You know, what? If, if you had to say what was the most mysterious thing, what is the most mysterious thing in modern science today, it's probably material reality. We don't know what matter is. We, you know, we, ought, we, we may presume, oh, this is our starting point. But of course, that's been mystified for us. We really don't know what material. So there's certainly no sense of grounding things in the senses or in a material reality. A little bit more Tzimalikas. I don't mean to run this in the ground, but uh, I, I think it's important to set this out. He says, the salient point, though, is that Pace Paul, he made resurrection the central theme of his thought. Indeed, of all Christian doctrine, if there is no resurrection, there is no Christian faith, and all biblical history is void of any meaning at all. No one after Paul made so strenuously the cross and resurrection the pivotal point designating all history from start to finish. He does talk about, he says, the pre-Socratic religious question had been treated mainly in terms of pursuing stability behind the physis. That is, that what are the Greeks looking for? They're looking for some unchanging thing. Their idea is there's change, and you know, time is the moving image of eternity, and so they're seeking the essence. This is the problem of the one and the many, you know, or the problem of change and time. I probably, you probably heard, read Zeno's Paradoxes, he says, to be sure, some pagan schools of thought did quest for a purpose of history. Plato did reflect on the ultimate goal of the earthly life, 
Aristotle did research on the teleological causal sequence according to which civic life was formed. The Stoics, as well as Cicero, did visualize a world state based on reason as a goal which the human race ought to fulfill. What was entirely new, though, was the question of an overall meaning of human history. A purpose originated in the dispensation of God manifested within the world since its creation. Uh, they're not really concerned with history or philosophy of history per se. Well, history shows us that there is an Episcopal distrust for secular thinkers, probably because some of the latter were incomparable in learnedness and unmatchable in argument. He's saying, well, actually, the, 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 you know, the bishops and the churchmen often uh, didn't have the education or the intellect to understand what was happening in secular thought. Ecclesiastical men of the cloth hardly tolerated outstanding minds. It was felt, it seems, that the authority of the doctrine should stem only from the pulpit. This authority upheld by mainstream modern scholarship charged origin with letting history evaporate into thin ideas and lacking any eschatology whatsoever. And he does a lot of work showing origins eschatology. My proposition is that the Alexandrian origin formed a distinctly Christian philosophy of history, faithfully following Paul in making the cross the midpoint of history. He also formed an eschatology. It is crystal clear, no matter how putative orthodoxy might receive this. In other words, they're going to condemn origin, the, both East and West. Matt, I get this from you, that this probably shows up the people. In other words, this, this throws a bad light, I think, on the history of the church, uh, not because of origin, but because of what they did to origin. What are you, what is, what are you taking this from? This is from Pete Samalicus. It's origin, philosophy of history and eschatology. But how do you? I'm sorry. How do you spell his name? T z a m a l i k o s. Yes, I've heard of. I've heard of him. Okay, thank you. Uh, you know, Bear mentions that he hesitates to even do anything with on first principles. The manuscript on first principles is problematic. Uh, who is it? Rufinus. I'm not sure how to say his name. And Samalicus has no trust in Rufinus. Nonetheless, he does, he puts together, he's reading fragments, he's reading various translations. He has a very good idea of, okay, would Origen have said this or of or Origen would not have said this? Some, some, you know, just some really cool ways to, to, to think about and read Origen. So I'm, I appreciate you sharing this stuff. Origen is uh, aware that what he's doing, there, that, the, that language is not up to it. In other words, that even to talk about timelessness, that, that you can't really use a verb that's going to in any way convey truth about timelessness because all verbs are time. This is a quote from uh, On First Principles. To be sure when we speak these words, such as always or was or ad uh, adopt any similar word with temporal significance, they are to be taken simply and with due allowance, since the significations of these terms 
are temporal. But the things of which we speak, though spoken of by a stretch of language in a temporal mode, yet surpass in their nature every idea of a sense of time. He said, I can't say this stuff. He's going to use language, and he's going to have to use his own terminology and develop a, his, his, an understanding of what time, the eons, or you know what the Greek understanding is. And then back to Contra Kelsum, he, he specifically says that I'm not teaching transmigration of souls. I'm not teaching the idea of the pre-existence of souls. Everybody's going to accuse him of that. And he himself said, this ain't what I'm doing. This is the quote from Contra Kelsum. If he had understood what is appropriate for a soul, which will have everlasting life. So he is going to talk about the eternality of people. But he means something very specific by that. And what is right, the right view of its essence and origin? He would not have ridiculed this in this the way, the idea of an immortal person entering a mortal body, Christ, right? Our view here does not accept the Platonic doctrine of the transmigration of souls, but a different and more sublime view. I don't know what he could have done to make it clear. He would also have understood how, because of his great love to man, God made one special descent in order to convert those whom the divine scripture mystically calls the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which had strayed down from the mountains in certain parables. The shepherd is said to have come down for them, leaving on the mountains those who had not gone astray. He's working with a logic. The peculiar logic of this thing is the end is in the beginning. Again, this is from On First Principles. Seeing then that such is the end, when all enemies will be subjected to Christ, and when the last enemy, death, will be destroyed, and when the kingdom shall be delivered to God, the God and Father by Christ, to whom all things have been subjected, let us, I say, from such an end at, as this, contemplate the beginning of things. Here's the end of the thing. Here's the telos. And the beginning is reflective. In other words, the end is already in the beginning. For the end is always like the beginning. And therefore, as there is one end of all things, so there ought to be understood one beginning of all things. As there is one end of many things, so also from one beginning, there are many differences and varieties, which in turn, through the goodness of God and by subjection to Christ, and through the unity of the Holy Spirit, are recalled to the one end, which is like the beginning. That is, all those who, bending the knee at the name of Jesus, have displayed by this the proof of their subjection to him, those who are of the heavens and of the earth and of the regions under the earth, the entire universe being indicated by the three terms, those that in whom, who from the one beginning, each one, various led by his own impulse, were arranged in different orders according to their merit, for goodness did not exist in them essentially as it does in God and in and his Christ and the Holy Spirit. 
For in this Trinity alone, which is the author of all things, does goodness exist essentially. Others possess it as an accident and something that can be lost. And only then are they in blessedness, when they participate in holiness and wisdom and divinity itself. This was the section, the bearer devoted a whole section to this. The, the uh, end is in the beginning. And he means this, he's actually referencing Tzimalakas here again, and Tzimalakas's notion of prophecy. And the way that Tzimalakas pictures prophecy working is within the framework, he says, of a definite time frame with a beginning and an end. So if there's an end, there's a beginning. So when we talk about eternality, or we talk about creation being eternal, did Origen believe in a beginning and the end? Oh, yeah, he did, but he's also going to talk about creation as being eternal. He says it is readily applicable to the antecedent causes. Their authority is not simply chronological, but always related to the timelessness of God's foreknowledge. Rather than imagining a host of eternally existing intellects who through some pre-cosmic fall descend into bodies, it seems more probable that the antecedent causes invoked by origin to reconcile the inequality of human fate with an affirmation of the justice of God refers to the anteriority of the foreknowledge of God, who knows all things for each from their womb. Did you just uh, did you understand what I just read? It's a fairly simple idea. What is God's foreknowledge based upon? Well, it's based upon what happened. He, he foreknows it. Uh, it doesn't cause it. So here in uh, contrast, uh, Kelson, he says, the one who made the prediction was not the cause of the future event because he foretold that it would happen. But we hold that the future event, which would have taken place, even if it had not been prophesied, constitutes the cause of its prediction by the one with foreknowledge. So, Bear uses the example of Christ on the cross. It is because Christ died on the cross that the prophets spoke about this, not because they spoke about it and, and then he died. In fact, when they spoke about it, they did so as a past event. And given that it is happening, it's happening is the cause of the prophecy Christ himself speaks of it as an eternal necessity. How can you do this? How can you say this? The answer to this question is that this causality, although manifest in history, is in fact a causality between time and timelessness. Prophecy is uttered by a prophet who looks to the future, yet it is God who speaks through the prophet. What is uttered originates in God's own foreknowledge. Prophecy, as a result, although manifested in time, actually springs from timelessness. Paul, I know just through conversations that you and I have had that even with your late mentor, uh, that you've always been interested in this question about God and time. I'm wondering what's, what's captured your... You, clearly, this is very cool stuff. I'm wondering what you know how this plays into our discussion of uh, hermeneutics and time. 
I, I don't know if you guys are getting it, but I think this is foundational to what Origen is doing. But I'd go further. I think this is foundational to understanding Christianity. And what he's describing, of course, is that not God existing along a timeline. You know, Jack Cottrell literally said, God exists along a timeline. This happened, and then this happened, and that, that's the life of God. That's a total contradiction. I think that's outright heresy. It's surprising to hear a theologian say that. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I run in the wrong circles. It's nonsense. The question of how time and eternity relate, I think, is the key question in the relationship between the Father and the Son, because the Father is timeless. The Father exists in eternity. That eternity is not existing, you know, in a chronological order, but eternity, the language does break down. Eternity encompasses time, that through Christ, God is time-filled, but nonetheless timeless. I think the other move that Origen wants to make, too, that's critical to our discussion, and I, and I would guess that the reason why he's, you know, going so hard on, on this particular subject is because once we do, uh, you know, once we place God within time, then we start to anthropomorphize him all the way through, right? In other words, that's how we begin to think and talk about God is in finite, sort of limited human terms, and he becomes beholden to those sorts of categories of thought for origin, I think, right? That we can end up, and that's how we read the scriptures, right? That we say, we begin to understand God's action in the world as in somehow determinative. The world is in some way determinative of, of how we can even think and talk about God, that he has eyes and hands and feet and, you know, he does things chronologically, right? I think that he's yeah. doing, making both moves. Uh, let's not lose sight. You know, what? what's this book about? Well, it's about how to read the Bible. I mean, I think that's that's Bear's point is that you go through the, the stages. You know, the early parts of this book, you know, the three early parts of the, or the three books actually are so complicated that many people, they get to the fourth and he starts saying, okay, now we're ready to read the Bible. And of course, most of it, many of his readers have said, well, wait a minute, what's this got to do with anything? Well, Bear's point is, oh, this is what we're talking about clear through. If you're going to read the Bible in the way that it should be read, I think is what Origen is describing. And of course, that's what we've been saying, is that Christ is there throughout, that Christ is not bound by Old Testament, New Testament. Christ is not bound by the ages, but uh, that the revelation is all Christ. I think that that's what we're describing in, in Origen's picture of time and eternity. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.